Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live without Bobby in three, two, one. Well, I know it's a different voice opening up, but welcome everybody to West Point, the Gamekeeper Studio. Here we are without Bobby. Where's Bobby Dudley? I I think he's on a turkey hunt. Imagine that. Here we are, the week of April sixth, middle of turkey season, and Bobby's hunting, and we're working. About a Mac. That's pretty fitting. I'd say <laughs> he, he slipped out of here. The turkeys are are starting to act a little better, and starting to fall a little bit so he's he's heading north to tennessee with with his daughter so they'll have a good time no they'll have a good time. did i see michael wayne with him they've got the camera crew they got the camera crew. oh okay well that's exciting presumptuous yeah. hey now he's got to perform maybe he'll make the blood on the biologic segment absolutely next week. <laughs> well speaking of that uh what's the report from the field there dud i have uh I've been playing with hand up gobblers, but enjoying every minute of it. Um, I got into one Saturday that just gave me a lot of trouble, but it was a really fun hunt. And uh, I got sidetracked. I found a bunch of morel mushrooms and ended up doing that for a couple of hours. So, you Didn't know, to we have me, those yesterday or some elk steak? To me, that was a win. Delicious. No, those, those I think were some shiitakes, but Sam cooked the morels last night and made them, uh, made a sherry sauce kind of deal. And I got to have some for breakfast this morning. Oh, nice. It was really good. Nice. (laughs) Well, cool. Well, uh, Matt, what about it on the turkey woods? They're they're pretty good. Seem, seem hinned up. We yelped one up Sunday. Uh, I mean, right off the limb, he gobbled it. 605 which was pretty early i thought um and then ended up getting him in within range about 645 and a good shot was made and had some turkey breasts and some legs in the freezer went this morning gobbled good and then didn't say a word on the ground. Made me <laughs> made me feel pretty bad. I, I took my tail. Your lip was kind of poked out this morning. It, it most certainly was. Right when you think you got them figured out, they'll throw you for a loop. But I, th- I think they're. I think they'll be right here in the next couple of days, probably. Yeah, no doubt about it. We had a pretty good hunt down at the dummy line the other day. You know, Bobby connected. What him. happened with that? Well, you know, let me tell Bobby's story first. <laughs> I knew this was going on. So we're we're you know he drops me off. Nonetheless, you know I have one chunk of private land to hunt. You know. And, and I wake up earlier to hunt the private land than I do the public land. It's, um, it blows my mind. But nonetheless, uh, Bobby dropped me off, oh, probably seven hours before daylight. And I went to sleep in the pine plantation. 
Uh, and I woke up and there was a shooting star and I was like, this is going to be a good day. Yeah. It's a good sign. It was a good sign. It was a good sign. So anyways, uh, ended up, uh, getting on a Turkey, uh, and just had a classic, uh, great. He ripped it. I mean, just absolutely gobbled his head off. Uh, you know, got set up where I thought I needed to be. He was within 50 yards. I just could never see him is what it comes down to it. And then of course I hear the report of gunfire off in the distance. And I know Mr. Cole has more than likely struck. So it was in Bobby's distance. Yeah, so it was, yeah. No question about it. No doubt about it. So the pressure's on. The pressure's on. Like, I like, I feel the phone buzz in my butt. And I'm like, no, no, this isn't going to happen. I've got to do something here. So did a typical scenario. We talk about putting the loop on him all the time. I backed up, went way around him, uh, got to stop, you know, where I thought I could hear him. And sure enough, he gobbled in there about 150 yards. I was coming in from the opposite way. Uh, cut another 50 yards. Uh, and got that, well, cut another 40 yards, 30, 40 yards. Got that nervous feeling, and sure enough, he gobbled right on top of me, but I couldn't see So uh, hit the bell, hit the ground on the belly. Uh, no tree to get on. It was in one of those just flooded areas that I didn't, couldn't. I was scared to pick up and roll into a tree, uh, and he went, uh, and then I made the fatal mistake of yelping at him. <laughs> so... Uh, he showed up at five yards and I smooth missed him. And that's the story of the day. So that sounds pretty exciting to me. I I would almost take that as a win. (laughs) I actually am. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm taking it as a win. I've missed very few. I'm fortunate enough not to miss very many. Shannon thought I'd be in depression for, you know, 14 to 28 days. And I shook it off in a couple. Cause you're right. That's the best hunt I've ever had. And didn't bring a bird home. (laughs) Why do you think, what do you think was the cause of the miss? Uh, he was too close. I was on my belly, not on my knee. I rolled to the side. I should have let the turkey walk off. I mean, that's like trying to hit a turkey in the head with a spitball at five yards. I mean, it's just hard to do. Yeah, he got and he gobbled too, right at five yards. So you know, it's kind of hair stand up on the back of your neck. That's right. That's right. So, so yeah, uh, turkey season full swing. We got people spread all over the country. The other crew, part of the crew, is in Texas, uh, doing it up there. We wish all those guys uh, a lot of luck out there. Uh, but today uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit from actually talking turkeys to talking a little bit about waterfowl. We got a very special guest in here today, uh, Mr. Ramsey Russell with Get Ducks. There it is. Glad, we've we've talked we've talked about getting him on for a yeah, while. Yeah, we, we met him at the uh, Mississippi Waterfowl Symposium. I can't, I don't know how we don't know each other. I mean, you're from here. You're our age. You went to Mississippi State. I mean. You're a rabid duck hunter that's got a bottom land visor on. How do we not know? I don't know. I mean, we, we knew of him, but well, we never really crossed paths. We're proud to have you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I've been fired up since I woke up this morning. So, yeah, you were, uh, I think, over at State yesterday talking with some of the waterfowl guys. Yeah, I met with Brian Davis over at Mississippi State University and then met with somebody else over around Stoughtville and uh, had a great conversation, did a little podcast. I like to stay off with them biologists. I like to talk to them. I'm, uh, I know just enough about it to be dangerous. You get off in my head and my imagination run wild. So I like to be tempered with real science. No doubt about it. That's one of our the, the greatest things about what we do here. We have all these field observations that we talk about all the time. And when the we call the smart guys show up with all the, the, the data and the trends and validate some of the observations you've had in the field, it, it's it's really cool. That's yeah. right. I mean, I, I went to school with some of those folks, and uh, but I, I kind of consider myself 50-50. You know, like I, I observe and, and – and study. Yeah, and make ideas. But, you know, a lot of what I know is reading what all those other people have done, you know, reading all their studies. And uh, so that's that's kind of how we seem to do it around here is we, we make our observations in the field and have these ideas. 
but uh, a lot of those PhD types clarify things for us, you know, and come up with things we don't think about. So not that I always agree with it, but I, yeah. I don't always agree with them. I don't. But uh, I'm so glad to have them. You know, I agree with them probably 95 percent of the time. I, I, I think that's one of the biggest <laughs> distinctions about America. As, or North America as compared to the rest of the world is we, we have an incredibly committed institution, all these universities, all these scientists, uh, all these NGOs and federal government, state agencies working together to manage waterfowl. Mm-hmm. You know, for good reason, because we put more pressure on than anybody else in the world too. But man, we, we you meet a guy like Brian Davis. I've known him since 1994. I went to school with him. And I mean, he's committed his entire life to studying waterfowl and wetlands and habitat. And there's hundreds of guys around the country like that. Yeah, we've had him on before, and I hope we get him again. He's a, a brilliant guy, good person. Yeah, working on him with that duck banding project here, so hopefully able to get that done one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to catch ducks. <laughs> it is hard to catch them. Yeah, it really is. Especially when they're not around. Yeah, exactly, 100%. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, we were talking about this. Most of the banding is done up north. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh and uh, I, I don't admit to being a duck specialist. I grew up duck hunting. I hadn't been super involved with it in probably 15 years, you know, when I moved right. here from the Delta. But uh, it's it's interesting how all that works. And I, I assume uh, it's harder to decoy a duck in the South, too. So I, I would imagine it's harder to trap a duck as well. They, yeah. they started doing it. There's several projects down the Deep South now doing duck banding. Uh, Paul Link, I can think of it. Probably one of the most prolific banders. He's down around Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm going to band with him this coming weekend. Uh, Doug Osborne over over in Monticello, Arkansas. They've got a lot of interesting wintering ground projects and marrying up that data to the to the banding data. That's what tells the fuller story. So you know, it's not just Canada. It's important. And you know what scares me is they haven't banded ducks in two years up in Canada. And and so much of that banding date, I used to think, you know, back in the old days, it banded duck in Canada and see where he goes so we can understand the flyaways, and, and that's a part of it, but the, the harvest data. And that's what, to me, especially when we're all asking where the heck the ducks are in the deep south, you know, what's the mortality looking like? What is the harvest rate? That's important to know. It ain't, it ain't important just to know how much we got in the bank, how much we're spending. You know what I'm saying? That, that's very important data. It's, it's funny you say that. Uh, when I was a, a new student at Delta State in 1997, uh, well, we've been talking about this forever. You know, why do the ducks seem to be staying up north? But right. I, I wrote an article for the Delta State newspaper. You know, why, why do the ducks seem to be staying up north? I had no idea, but I, I was kind of, uh, it was, it was, my How editorial was, was in the form of a question with my hypothesis about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, well, what's your hypothesis? Um, at the time, you know, I didn't work in the hunting industry and it was an editorial and I may have been wrong, but (laughs) I was kind of blaming it on the fact that Missouri has all this money and, uh, they've got all this food and, uh, the ducks just didn't have as much of a reason to come down here anymore. Um, and, uh, but back then we were still breaking ice a lot. So I didn't seem to blame it on the weather pattern as much. And I, I was probably wrong on a lot of it, but, uh. Thank you, Mr. Know-it-all. Thank you, Mr. Know-it-all. Who knows? Somebody go dig that article back up. Uh, They're shortstopping in Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, cool. Well, hey, look, it's that that those agencies, our our uh, our wildlife institutions, are a heck of a resource for us. Uh, and I think that's what we want to talk about today, Ramsey. Is ducks? You know, you you've probably seen. You know, we love to have people in the studio that just have you know tons of field experience. And I, I would I would uh, I would ponder to say that you've probably seen more not only here but across the globe. Uh, than anybody we've ever had in the studio. So um, what what do you think about, you know, the state of the ducks uh, n- nationally and globally? That's, Boy, a, big that's, a, that's a big question. How, <laughs> how long you got for that answer? Yeah, we got all day. We got some red beans and rice cooking in the back. We'll hit that in a minute. I, I tell you this, I've especially since, uh, especially since COVID, since the pandemic, when the borders closed and I couldn't leave the U.S., I just realized sitting in my recliner thinking about, you know, duck hunting. Boy, there's a lot in the U.S., I haven't seen. And there's a lot in the United States to see in the world of duck hunting. I mean, you think about the, the Sac Valley of California, to North Dakota, to western Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, over to, to Long Island, just outside of uh, New York City, to western New York, to Florida. There's a lot of, there's a, we got so many nuances in duck hunting. And, and you, it's so interesting because you can go up just as close to Real Foot Lake and you hear a totally different calling style with them little metal reed mm-hmm. and folks start, ang, 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 anking the ducks in very traditionally versus we all know what a matter duck sounds like through a duck call, but your cadence and how you sound versus somebody in Texas or California or Oregon or any Idaho is different. It's almost like these little uh, accents, these little brogues as you go around the country. And I just find that fascinating, let alone the species. Yeah. You know, the, the accepted uh, count is 41. I count 58 subspecies that I can lawfully take in the United States of America, and, and which brings up the point of where those birds take me. I'm not a collector, but I am. I collect experiences. To go shoot to go shoot a tundra swan versus an Atlantic branch versus a Pacific branch versus a redhead versus a canvasback versus a pintail just starts taking me all into these different cultures, little little sub-American cultures and communities and traditions and habits. and I just can't get it. And then you start expanding out to the world. But the state of duck hunting in the United States, uh, this year I hunted three Canadian provinces, 15 states. The year before, 22 states. Man, I'll jump in that little dirty white truck. And every two and a half days I'm moving. I might be driving 40 minutes down the road or 14 hours, but I jump around. And not just with outfits. I've got, you know, we've built a business with a lot of relationships with credible outfitters. But where I've really found a lot of value is hunting with regular guys. It might be a 23-year-old kid hunting on Papaw's back 40. It might might be a big club owner going to some of these clubs that have existed pre-migratory bird treaty act. It's it's just so rewarding of all of a sudden getting to put my hands uh, on the pulse of real American duck hunting, and that 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 has been. I'll tell you a story, and uh, I greatly enjoyed going to Connecticut. Connecticut calls themselves the constitutional state. They're anything but. Is there anything but what we think of the Constitution? Let me tell you, I, I can get a I can get a hunting license or a firearm permit in Pakistan much easier than the state of Connecticut, and uh, which is a sad commentary on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so we go out, and I was surprised. We shot some ducks out on this little wetland. This guy hunts. We get the decoys out, and we do everything. And, and the first thing he says, "Hey, can I borrow your phone call? I left it. In, can I borrow your phone? I left mine in the truck." And I hand it to him, and he calls the police. He says, hey, this so-and-so, and I'm out here hunting. Just wanted y'all to know that him and her and her are going to call you and complain when they start hearing the shotguns go off because we're right in the middle of humanity, Connecticut. 
I said, you have to do it every time. He said, every time for 20 years when I start hunting, these guys start calling. <laughs> calling the police who come out here and going to interrupt our hunt. Well, the next day he wanted to go out and hunt Long Island Sound for sea ducks. And uh, y'all ever sea duck hunted? It, it's fun. It's different species. It's cool, but it's dirty. And that was the day I was going to, like, we get back to boat ramp, I got to go. It's supposed to rain, salt water all over the guns. And I'm like, man, I, I'm really not going to want to drive, you know, nine hours and have to disassemble my gun and wash it off in the bathtub. You know, I'd, I'd like to skip sea duck hunting. And, you know, what I'd like to shoot in Connecticut if you got one of the black ducks. I was about to say. I've got a thing for black ducks. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I love black ducks. I can remember the last black duck I shot at on the scatters 10, something, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, my only black duck was uh... Uh, right outside of McIntyre Lake on the other side of the scatters. That's it. You know, it, two it's miles just, away from you. We don't see enough of them anymore down here. And uh, I love, don't know why, but I like to shoot them. And he says, Yeah, I, I got a spot. And we get up and drive. And we're talking about a tiny state of Connecticut. But we get up early in the morning and drive an hour and a half to go out to this wetland. And it's, it's public where a little bitty stony brook comes into a little pool. I'm going to say football field long. And, um, uh, about as wide, about, about like a football field, a little old water sitting out there. And there was a kid that met us at the where we parked, and uh, he'd been there for an hour and a half holding the spot. And the scouting report was four mallards and two black ducks. I'm like, man, this is a level of hardcore. <laughs> That's serious. I mean, we at 100, percent you know, I, I got a limit. I mean, this is hardcore. <laughs> Four matters come in right to crack a dawn, landed out there about 80 yards. But that, that was that with them. And, and we sat out there till 8 o'clock, didn't see another duck. And it, it cased up my little old 28 gauge. And was, we were talking and fixing where we're going to go eat. And they got some pretty good sandwich shops out there in that part of the world. And by the time I saw a black duck fly about 100 yards out there, and I quacked to him, and it turned. So I'm getting my gun undone, and it comes over right over, floating over right over top of us. And, and I could have shot it, but I didn't. Passed me over and got over to him. I quacked. Cut right into the decoy shot. And you just thought we'd shot 10 limits. I mean, it's yeah. just, that's a level of commitment. And it made me realize, and I had a conversation with my host. I said, duck hunting here's tough. He goes, you're damn right it's tough. That takes a, a passion and a level of commitment. And I can't imagine going to some of these far-flung countries, Guatemala, Argentina, Azerbaijan, and they, they would not be out there hunting for one duck. Mm-hmm. But it's how that, tra- that hand-me-down tradition of duck hunting and connection to the past generations that, that did it and introduced you to it, it it's, it's very prevalent here in the United States. But, but I think, on the one hand, I think America, the United States, to include Canada, Mexico, North America, is extremely blessed with tremendous opportunities for duck hunting and the science of duck hunting that we started off talking about that we America, North America is so far in advance of the rest of the world on the, 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 the research and the science and the NGOs and the state and the federal governments all buoyed by rabid, avid duck hunters that will drive an hour and a half for one duck, you know, buoying that with their financial and time commitments we're so far in advance of the rest of the world that we've already lapped them, and we're coming up fixing to lap them again. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We're we're, at, but we have to be because of the hunting pressure we're putting on. Man, we Americans, we go after those ducks like they hurt our mamas. We've elevated every aspect of duck hunting from the camo mm-hmm. to the guns to the ammo to to everything to an art form. Oh yeah, and we're all in, and yeah. and just something about having grown up in the in the in the, in the most 
powerful and beautiful and blessed country on earth, capitalistic society, man. I mean, we want that limit. We don't want one. We want we we're going for we're going for all we can get, and and that that as you see it become manifest in the country, it's, it's a lot of hunting pressure. It's a lot of demand on that resource, and and uh, no, I think when you go to Argentina, when you go to parts of Mexico, when you go to some of these other countries, Guatemala, Guatemala is about the size of Tennessee. A lot of mangroves, a lot of a lot of rice fields, a lot of stuff. Fewer than a hundred hunters. Who knows how many duck hunters? Probably not a hundred. Not to include subsistence type hunters, but in terms of recreational hunters, like we think about it. And so while they may not have more ducks than many places I've been, I could see in North America, they have zero hunting pressure. So the quality goes through the roof. It's like going back to the 1800s. I hunt a spot down in Argentina. It's, it's, I'm, oh, it's been a few weeks to go. <laughs> his, his, his face and, started um, glowing. I did not know until COVID hit just how much I love parts of the world I get to go to. Mm-hmm. And this about 10 years ago, we were this time of year, late March, we were down in Argentina kind of exploring their fall opportunities like rice depredation type stuff and they just changed the gun rules maybe this area was dry wet it was just purely guinea pig nothing to do i'm gonna go down there and kick around for a few weeks and i had two clients want to join me I said, oh we want to go deal real ramsey shit and uh everybody wants to do that till listen till you get into this stories like this and you're really doing it and you're like well, i don't know about this no more you know because uh we were playing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, we were just running around, bouncing around, trying to trying to trying to grab something. It was stressful because I had two clients in tow. I wouldn't have been stressed at all. And I had been to the province of Santa Fe three or four times. It's probably one of the most advertised parts of Argentina you see, you know. And I I don't care for it. It's just as compared to say an average day and um West Point, Mississippi duck hunting or out in Vicksburg, it, it's it's stellar. But as compared to what Argentina really has, it's just mediocre at best. And the third time, I couldn't put my finger on what wasn't just blowing wind in my sails over this part of Argentina. I just, you know, go out and shoot 15 or 20 ducks. Maybe go out and even shoot that many more. Who can argue with that? You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, I couldn't put my finger on it. You know what? It's just too... Uh, it's cliche, the word. It just it just wasn't doing it, you know, and I, I didn't like that guy's attitude. It's like he, he didn't he resented having to do something for me. You kinda go hunt the Paraná River and then we'd go hunt some rice fields and oh senor, we only hunt the rice fields one time per week. Well, that sounds good. But the third trip I went, third outfitter, we go out there and and uh the, the locals are short. They're just like a short form of humanity. We'll go out there and meet our staff and my bird boy for that afternoon is wearing a getducks.com hat, very worn, that I had given him four years ago. I'm like, snap. Now I got why this thing is mediocre. In that part of Argentina, here comes an operator. I go lease a house. I advertise. I bring in a chef. I, but now I'm just like a roofing contractor. You know what I'm saying? I've got this brand, and here's how I'm going to hunt. But every outfitter for 10 lodges up and down that highway is contracting to the same rice field. Mm-hmm. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like it, no matter who you hire to sign up with to come and shingle your house, here come the shingles. They sit in your driveway until that contract crew comes through and it's your turn. It's the same contractor doing everybody's house. Wow. 
And that's when I go, that's why I don't like it. So I just said, I'm never going back to Santa Fe products. I will never come back. That's not my cup of tea. I've got these outfits down here I like. I'll never come back. So here we are 10 years ago playing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And my girl Martha down there says, well, you know, Ramsey, I got this place in Santa Fe. We ought to go try it out. The guy says he got a lot of ducks. I was like, Martha, I don't want to go back to Santa Fe. And that parent said, no, no, no. This is elsewhere. It's not the Paranal River. So we get to the lodge at midnight, coming down a muddy road, sliding and slipping, and the last 52 kilometers off pavement is down a dirt road, not gravel. I think a dirt road in Mississippi being gravel, mm-hmm. you know, gravel. If it's been raining, it's mud, four-wheel drive, I'm talking, baby. And uh, I walk out the next morning, and I follow my guy, and I walk. I walk a half mile in ankle deep water, marsh. I mean, my imagination thinking, this is what Louisiana looked like when they pushed the Acadians off into it. Mm. I mean, this is just wild and unspoiled marsh, as far as I can see, is marsh. And uh, at times, I mean, I shot a bunch of ducks, but at times the bird boy would say, Senor, Senor, he poked me or do something to point to more ducks. I'm just sitting with my jaw open like a calf staring at a new gate at all the ducks. And in that moment, it dawned on me, I have, I have walked all these miles through all these places and in search, I found this place. This is what I've been looking for. This is, it ain't, I describe that that hunt not as a place on a map, but a place in time like, it's the closest all over the world I've ever put myself in the year 1850, and I love it. It's wild, mm-hmm. wild. But I get back to the lodge and I'm talking to the outfitter with my interpreter. He don't speak English. And I said, I, I love this place. I want my ashes scattered in this marsh. I've made up my mind that first hunt. I want my ashes scattered in this place. Wow! And uh, but I'll, I'm gonna list it up on on getducks.com. But I'll I'll never sell a hunt. He goes, why? I said, it's a 12 hour drive from Buenos Aires. Nobody, no, except for my crazy ass. Nobody's <laughs> gonna do this. Nobody's gonna do this. And I put it up, and a week later, the phone rang, and a guy from Montana. Uh, he doesn't hunt anymore, but older guy he called him and said. You finally got the hunt I'm looking for. That, that's wild. I want that hunt. I said, well, now it's a long drive. He goes, ah, we're in. Six of them, boom. The following year, six turned into 12. following year, turned to 18, and it just it blew up. And, you know, it's a long drive. If you, if, you, if you can't be inconvenienced with a long drive and muddy roads and stuff like that, it ain't your hunt. But that's to the distance you have to go to find that well, kind of wild, you know, there's a lot of people wild. that want the experience. They're not just there for that two-hour hunt. Uh, I mean, look at Teddy Roosevelt. Absolutely. You know, he he did a lot of that. That that's a that and that's really a good point. I really find myself selling the experience. Whether we're talking being an, uh, an ambassador of sorts for for duck hunting in the United States. Or, or going elsewhere, it's all about the experience because in this day and age, the state of duck hunting in, let's say, America, it ain't. It, let me tell you what, my humble opinion, my crystal ball, based on antidotal evidence, not science, we're fixing to go through some hard times. I went to Canada. I went to uh, the, the prairies last year, and it was drier than I've seen it in my lifetime. Dry, 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 dry. And there's there's just a a, a there's no way. I, short of Noah building ark, miracle between now and the time them planes get up in the air, there's no way they're gonna count matters. You know, last year, uh, I don't, I don't matriculate the duck hunting experience. I don't, I don't keep count. I don't want to. But you know, in 1994, I had this little Springer Spaniel. My family raced Springer forever, and we 
And I somehow just started keeping keeping track of how many ducks and retrieves and whatnot my dogs have retrieved. And I can't stand it. You know, it's just I've been doing it since 94, so why quit now? And this year, uh, I know how many retrieved little char dog mates picked up nine swans and uh, picked up 30 species. And 25% of the birds she picked up between, let's say, Delaware and uh, Montana or Wyoming, and Mississippi, that covered that area right there. Twenty-five percent of those ducks were mallards, and had about two hundred fifty-seven, two hundred fifty-eight duck mallard ducks. Not one single duck was a hatchier bird. And I look and I know the difference in in a, in a hatchier green head and an adult green head. I know the difference. Not one was a hatchier bird. And I know it's a small sample size for the United States, but from what I saw in Canada and North Dakota. And the birds she picked up, I think productivity is going to be extremely scary when they start counting birds. Manitoba, I'm hearing, is very wet. The further west you get, the worse it gets. And, and you know, mallards are what drives. The mallards going into that adaptive harvest management model, as I understand it, is what's driving central and Mississippi flyaway season lengths and bag limits. I remember in 1997, 98, when we were shooting 30-day season, Two mallards, three duck, three mallards. And where, where I wonder about the state of duck hunting is uh, where are we going to be? Where are we going to be at a time in American history that we need hunter participation? Never mind a crowded boat ramp. Never mind the people downwind. Never mind the circus on public land. Forget all that. We need conservation dollars more than we've ever needed. We, we, have, we, we are struggling to, to remain politically relevant in this country. We have got to pour more, not less. We, we need hunter participation. And where are we going to be and when, when young people can't build or craft identities around success or, or egos, let's say, with big piles? Where are we going to be? I, talk, I hear you I talk, loud and clear. I talked to an outfitter down in Texas that said the last time he, he'd been guiding for 50 or 60 years down in southeast Texas. And he said the last time they they, they put them limits of time, I'm talking about 30 and 3, he lost 75% of his clients. And he said, and when when, the, when it got wet again and the ducks came back, most of those clients sat on the sidelines. Where are we going to be if we lose 75% of our duck hunters as a culture, as a, as a, as a people, as a, as a conservation resource? heck are we going to be? That, and that, that that bothers me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think the world of duck hunting is as good as it's going to get, and we, we've got to we got to dig deeper, not go the other way. Don't pick up the golf clubs, buy more shotguns, buy more camo, buy more ammo, and let's get yeah. the ball rolling to do what we can to, to, to save this tradition. That's what I think. And, and change, you know. The, and I hate the, to get all deep. Yeah, like no, that. we got it. I mean, it's like we've been talking about for turkeys for the last few years. We have to, to change how we define success. Uh, and you hit the nail on the head. It's not about bag limits. It's about those experiences. You're um, dang right. And and if we can change that, and as hunters still participate at that level and not define success. I mean, because I look, I'm a rabid waterfowler. I, I grew up just, you know, just I'm just eat up with it too. Uh, and, you know, even myself, I, you know, how did I define sex? I'm back at the truck, you know, within an hour, you know, limited out, you know. But that doesn't have to be what it is, and we have to take control of that and responsibility for that as hunters. It's too. what I say, you know, you've got to love duck hunting or hunting in general for what it is right. and what it ain't. Mm-hmm. But I love it. I truly love it. You know, 
I told a long story about going to shoot a single black dog. Yeah. That hit home with me, though. And yeah. I, I count that morning as a huge success. Mm-hmm. I was proud of that duck. You know what I'm saying? I got a heck of a story to talk about. Yeah. I, I enjoy, you know, when we draw cards, at, you know, before the hunt and drink coffee and the oh, boat yeah. ride. and The sun uh, coming up on the water. I know it sounds yeah. cliche, but, I mean, you've got those experiences. <laughs> hey, this is Dudley from Native Nurseries. I spend a lot of time deep in the woods looking for special trees. Onyx keeps me on track and helps me be sure I can find them again and my way out. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your Onyx subscriptions. Mr. Ramsey, back to the the recruitment of the mallards that your dog picked up. What do you think is, is playing a factor in that hatch? And, and, and what are some things that you think that we need to move in the right direction to, to make that more successful? There, there's a lot of biologists out there that can speak far more scientifically than me. I'm, I'm not that guy. But what the thing about duck populations, really and truly, uh, if you ask any any mainstream waterfowl biologist, hunting harvest, hunter harvest, hunter-related harvest is not what's driving those populations. It's habitat, 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 habitat. It's all about the habitat and that drought. Those, those ducks have got to have that water and got to have got to have that associated vegetation and everything else to produce birds. And it's almost like those little chi-chi plants. Add water to the prairies, mm-hmm. here, here, they, here they come. It happens every time. I was up there hunting with a, a big, it was a bunch of us out there hunting one morning in Saskatchewan this year. Just a friendly hunt. There were eight farmers, eight producers up there. And we all got to talking about it, you know. And uh, they said that this year was drier than it's been since 2002, far drier. And they said, but in 2002, the, uh, the duck's productivity took a hit. But they got a real uh, weird storm event in like August it rained seven inches and it filled up all those ponds and so when the ducks came back boom, paradise mm. and, and they were able to catch back up that's all it really takes you know what I'm saying it ain't the end of the world that we go through because really and truly we talk about waterfowl we talk about wetlands and one thing we know about wetlands is you have to have dry periods if you don't have a dry period in a wetland it's a lake mm. right. a lake is not as productive as a vibrant ephemeral wetland so you got to have those dry periods. The fear is, you know, I heard, I heard something, somebody told me the other day, there was a uh, senator in North Dakota writing something in the farm bill to where farmers can opt out of CRP. You're not held to that contract. Nope, I don't want out. Commodity price up. I'm out. Dude, that, that's, that's nesting habitat. Mm-hmm. That's what we need is that CRP for habitat. And when you get off across the borders, they don't have – U.S. Department of Agriculture coming in and, and providing some kind of offset direct cyclical payments or something like that for farming up there in Canada. It's like like one old farmer told me that year I was banning. We bought a uh, we used to buy our grain to a swimming trap we were banning ducks with. Oh, Halter Halterson was his name, and he was a farmer. and And it was uh, man, he he have a nineteen fifty seven era uh, international harvester combine, and he'd he'd have he'd have dead gum. Uh, Box wrenches that long with all kinds of crooks where he could snake it down there and get that bowl. Do it yourself, man. It was God, the railroads, and him. That's that's how you made it. It was like farming a long time ago. So you kind of can't blame them. If they can pick up another 50 or 80 acres when, when that wetland's dry, I'm going to plant barley. You kind of can't blame them for that. You know what I'm saying? But it's all about, it's all about the habitat. You know, we got lambasted 
recently. Uh, and that's the thing about this day and age when you put yourself out there and want to tell your stories to the public. You put yourself out there, you open yourself up for criticism. And mm-hmm. I was down in Guatemala, and I held up eight beautiful blue-winged teal for a photo. And, and I woke up at night on social media, and, man, I had a bunch of Spanish comments. You know, we see one, that's okay, you know, a foreign language. But when you start seeing a bunch of them pile in, Better interpret it because it may not be good. Sure Get that enough, translation. Man, it, it was a handful of half dozen or so guys from Puerto Rico lambasting uh, exploitive hunting and everything else down in Guatemala. And I'm like, well, they weren't there this morning. And how can eight ducks, and I only shot twice that many, how can that be? And I was well within the bag limits. How can that be exploitive? You know, but no, they didn't care, man. They were, they were. Whew, I just ended up blocking a bunch of them after I tried to explain. Because what I had seen that day, we went to this one particular mangrove, and there's a series of levees. There wasn't much water. And they said, let us show you what this is about. And we go up, and, and some of the local farmers, small farmers, had gone in and dammed off that wetland and started diking it up to build uh, sea salt pits. And if you ever see how sea salt, really, what a sea, a sea salt pit looks like and all the Waste, humanity waste around it. You ain't never going to pick up a sea salt canister at Kroger, <laughs> let me tell you. But they, they, they drop that wetland, and all of a sudden you start getting this, uh, this salt forming through evapotranspiration. They go and mine it. That's what they sell. And then sugarcane. They need habitat for sugarcane. Well, that's, that's that. That's the habitat, my point. It's habitat lost by a thousand cuts, you know, and it's draining those. And, and, and then beyond habitat for ducks. Man, those mangroves account for 80% of the productivity of, of saltwater fishes and shrimp and shellfish and crabs and oysters and everything else. And it's being chopped to make sugar cane and salt. That was just one little wetland I saw in Guatemala. Man, the me going out and shooting however many ducks, blue-winged teal, that ain't the problem. The problem is we need habitat. We need to produce more ducks. And that's where a lot of these NGOs and federal government, state agencies come in in North America, on all sides of the border, is habitat, habitat, habitat. We need more habitat. And, and unless you have folks who are interested in hunting down there, then uh, you may you may lose that little habitat you have. Yep. And, you know, something like 80% or more of blue-winged teal that pass through Mississippi on a, on a, on a little bitty two-mile-an-hour north wind in September, 80% of them are south of the border you know, uh, Mexico and Central America. So it's not just what's happening in our backyards right here. I mean, it, it's, it's the whole flyway. And some of these species we're talking about from the Arctic clear down, clear down to Nicaragua. That's important mm. stuff. How do you get your hands on that? The U.S. government and state of Mississippi doesn't have jurisdiction across them borders. In come the NGOs like Ducks Unlimited. Love them or hate them, like that guy with the stick or not. Man, they are invaluable to what we all love to do, which is shoot ducks. It's a lot more complicated than something non-migratory like white-tailed deer. Yeah, <laughs> and right. we make a huge deal out of that. Yeah, or turkeys. Yeah. yeah, Or turkeys, that's right. And then yeah. one thing we, we seem to forget is, I mean, on that flight pattern, we got to get them in the best shape they can be in flying north on their return flight home. I mean, that's that's our little minute piece of the puzzle 
that makes that difference. Whether it's a puzzle. like Mr. Toxie always says, whether you're on forty or four hundred, that little bit that you do to get that duck a little bit more healthy on their return flight home could make the difference. It makes all the difference in the world. And that brings up I just had this thought, you know, hunters. Hunters are such an integral part of this equation that the non-hunters, anti-hunters just don't get. Hunters are our dollars and our time. That's right. Is what's driving it. And you say, well, you know, the bird, the bird watchers. You know, I know, some, you know, they're very serious and committed, and they love these birds. But you know, the difference in a bird watcher and a duck hunter. A bird watcher wants to see one. I want them so many ducks in the sky they eclipse the sun. So I don't shoot four. Right. And I'm willing to put my time and money into making that happen with, with all if I can. Right. That's the difference. That's a very important difference. Very. And then uh, from an educational standpoint, we need to make sure hunters are our biologists. That's a good point. I, I talked to Joel Bryce and uh, Cyrus Baird over at Delta Waterfowl. I think Ducks Unlimited has a similar program, but Delta Waterfowl kind of pioneered this. You know, and I'll give you an example. I spent the night last night with my buddy, Mr. Ian Munn. Uh, I know Dr. Started, Munn. He just started Mississippi State. I took his senior practice my, my last year. That was his first year, and we became friends. We've been duck hunting together now for 27, 28 years, starting when I went to grad school. And one day in a duck blind at camp, he asked me, he said, Ramsey, he was acting associate dean there at Forestry, and uh, he goes, how many kids were in your class when you graduated? I go, I don't know, 60. He said, how many of them hunted and fished? I go, all of, all of them I know, even the girls, everybody hunted or fished or did something. I mean, why the heck else would you be in this field? I, my way of thinking. Yeah, yeah that's how we you know. Me. Yeah, <laughs> that's what led us all here to this room. That's running. right. And uh, – he said, man, that's crazy. He said, he said, how many kids do you think are in, this, in the wildlife programs, plural? When I was there, it was wildlife. Now there's a bunch of programs, and it needs to be. There's a lot of different aspects to wildlife management. And uh, about 350, 350. I'm like, wow. He goes, 10% of them hunter fish. Wow. Yeah. That, and, no, and there ain't 350 jobs with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that I'm aware of. I mean, I don't know where all these college kids are going to get jobs if they shake out, but some of them are going to shake out, and they're going to be future policymakers. Mm-hmm. And Delta, Delta realized that, uh, you know, it's not important that this policymaker be a hunter, but they dead gum well better understand the value that we hunted. Where do you think those revenues are coming from with that state agency? Coming for us hunters. And, and you know, you start hearing the stories about them taking out. You know, think about... Uh, Brian described this yesterday too. It's it's animal plant, animal planet generation. That's their, that is their exposure. I could ask all y'all how y'all started hunting. It'd probably be very similar to mine. A family member growing up into it, going out dove hunting, duck hunting, turkey hunting with your daddy, your granddaddy, your uncle, your neighbor. That's the world we live in. But what if what if you were a kid who's only you live in a concrete jungle, or because of urban drift? Your dad and your granddad have nowhere to hunt, and your connection to nature is on that television. Well, I, I wanna, I wanna make the world a better place and work in animals. But you, but you need to know because you know when you start looking at state budgets, uh, going, to, you know, it doesn't matter if they're talking about waterfowl management, turkey management, boat ramps, pollinator habitat. It's all coming where from the hunters' pockets. That's a very important connection. So they started a uh, university hunt program. 
what did he tell me? 400 or 700 something universities. Now Mississippi State was one of the first ones where they come in, they equipment and gear and guns, and they go through a little short course about the calling and the shooting. They go out and shoot at the clay range, take them out to a duck blind. And one of the guys was telling me, not on the podcast, but in a private conversation one time down in Mexico, was telling me about this program and saying, you know, some of these kids, they ain't shoot guns. It, it, it's, it's not, they're there to get the credit. They're sitting in the duck blind. For whatever reason, they're just not into this hunting deal. We said the minute those calls come out and they see them ducks start oh, yeah. tilting and working, all of a sudden they, they can see that connection. They, they can feel that. They, they can hear them hush whispers, the excitement, these abductors all of a sudden, they ain't just flying through the sky. Now they're coming close. They get it. And they see that dog, come, that wet dog coming back, tail wagging with that mallard duck, and they hand that mallard duck to that young person. And that connects them. I mean, how many how many kids, seriously, how, how where would the world be? Where would we be without a BB gun? Shoot. Yeah. Where we could put our hands on, yeah. on, on them animals and connect with them. It's important. So I, I agree entirely with you that we, man, wildlife management commands an understanding of the role, the valuable role, the financial role that we hunters bring to wildlife conservation worldwide. I think the good news is, a, you know, a lot of these students are indeed non-hunters and not necessarily anti-hunters. And, uh, that's exactly big right. and we can, that's a big difference and, uh, and we can make a difference. We can take more folks hunting. No doubt. Just last week, you know, Olivia and David, you know, she she grew up in a, in a I wouldn't say a, a non-hunting environment, not an anti-hunting Not an anti. Yeah. And, you know, just like she shared experiences in the field now and has an appreciation. And she's passionate about seeing the convergence of just what you're talking about, agriculture, economics, and, and, and wildlife conservation. You know, that's the answer to all of it. Just so. get involved with it. And, you know, something I've realized, too, just we say – Take a kid hunting. It's important. It's a foregone conclusion that all our kids are going to go hunting or be exposed to it. Whether, whether They might be more into football than duck hunting. That's fine. That's kids. But they're exposed to it. Consider this. You know, when you start talking about the value that hunting brings and, and where water, what, what waterfowl conservation needs, whether it's a research project at Mississippi State University or uh, duck stamp sales, it's all about money. That's great. All kids, we need to get all the kids. All the kids in the world need to come hunting and see what we see. But at the same time, you take that eight-year-old boy hunting, it's going to be 20 years, maybe 30, before he's got he's got the wherewithal to spend meaningfully. He, you know, to buy the guns, to buy the gear, to buy the boats, to buy the stamps, to buy the license, to do the travel, to create that economy around it. Mm-hmm. You know, what about that guy you're working next to? Take him duck hunting. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Cause that you get a you get a you get a 35-year-old guy with a good job hooked on duck hunting, boom, he's got money to go buy stuff yeah. right now and get that and commit to that economy. Yeah. That's important. Great point. You know. Very interesting. Um we hadn't really talked a whole lot about you yet. Uh yeah. about uh, getting ducks. About and... I'm just a duck hunter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of vetted you through a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, and uh, he told me that he thinks you may have harvested more duck species than anybody in the world. That I don't know, but uh, in the I will say this: uh, 
I started off like everybody else, mallards, wood ducks, snow geese, um, and and I, I loved them. I'm sitting here surrounded by beautiful taxidermy, and I'm the same way. And um, but it, I'm trying I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate the difference in being a species collector. An experienced collector, because right? It's a big distinction. Yeah. Oh, it's sure. You know. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. You know, you uh, there's folks that have killed a turkey in all fifty states, right? Um, and there's a there's like a list and a thing. But you've been doing it in your own way, without any of the notoriety, right? Um, and, I, I and nobody I else I is real. I, I find that really interesting. Somebody asked me at Safari Club International last last. Uh, January, how come I didn't apply for their Game Bird of the World program? I said, why? Mm-hmm. That doesn't that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't need the attention. I, I don't care because I'm 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 living a life. It, 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 I'm I'm doing things that fulfill me, that make me feel good. And I don't I don't do it for you. I don't do it for your award. I don't do it for a participation trophy. I just do it because I love it. And uh, and I tell these guys, and I get a lot of phone calls, a lot of phone calls from people that are collecting the 41. Uh, here, here, here's a piece of trivia. If I, if I ask you, what do you think the number one species worldwide people ask me about is, what would you say? What would you guess? Number one species. I, I mean, I, I, I guess you'd say mallard, but maybe wood duck or I, I don't know. Cinnamon teal. Oh, uh, cinnamon teal. Cinnamon teal. You know, it, it just. It, There's a cinnamon teal on, our, on the log book at the. Uh, goose pond that it I happens. grew up hunting at you know, in but, Mississippi. But, like they shoot them in South Texas, but you can't target them in South Texas. There's handfuls of places you can target them in California, but not enough place for people that want to shoot them collector lists. Mexico, you want eighty percent of blue wings, eighty or ninety percent of cinnamon teal overwinter in Mexico. That's where you go to target cinnamon teal if you want to get one. I don't guarantee nothing, but that tactics and death. But it's a good, good, real good opportunity to go get a cinnamon teal. And I did the same thing. I kind of, well, you know, I became aware of this through studies and stuff about more ducks and more species, and I wanted to collect more. But let me back up. When I was in grad school, I was I was actually wanted to be a deer biologist. And I went down to South Texas co-op and on this 107,000-acre ranch, low fence, God, all the Boone and Crockett deer had come over history. They hired a biologist who hired a bunch of us college kids, paid us 500 bucks a month. Heck, I'd have paid him to be on that ranch and work like that, you know? Tim worked there. Yeah. And uh, and a strange thing happened. You know, shooting antlers deer and doing that kind of work was, was work. It was a job description. And uh, 30 miles behind a lock gate, every time the wind from about November on, every time the wind shifted out of the north, those little stock tanks would fill up with ducks, just a few. And uh, doves galore. Every time he dropped a disc, the doves come pouring in. Bob White quail everywhere. So I had plenty to entertain me and, and, and keep on the keep on the dinner plate, you know, mm-hmm. whopping five hundred bucks a month. I mean, I, I, sp- I spent it on beer and reloading equipment. You know, <laughs> yeah. I and, think uh, Brian, did Brian Murphy work wasted. with work with y'all over there too? Who? Brian Murphy. I don't remember. I, him. I think he may have. I know Tim and Brian used to work yeah, together. He may have. I, he wasn't there when I was there. But okay. anyway, that event going out. I didn't have decoys. I didn't know how to duck call. I had duck hunter shot a few ducks, but one a duck hunter. But just for something different to do besides go shoot a poor doe, um, I'd go sit out in the mornings and just wait on a duck to come flying by. Boom, I'd shoot. What do you think? The pond get up and they'd rally. 
And by the time they got done rattling, I was done, you know, and uh, that's kind of how. And then a, a, one of the boys I worked with down there from Texas got telling me about snow goose hunting down around Katy, Texas. And through a friend of a friend and a buddy buddy, I ended up coming back home and going down there one year to snow goose hunt. And it was, the limit was five. On the best days, you shot five apiece. Man, I, I, that, that was when I first realized there's hunting outside of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is because you know in Mississippi back in the days, I can remember being a schoolboy in Greenville, Mississippi, and the only snow geese you saw were you didn't see these fields around Bell's no, only solid sure white. They were flying down to the coast. Well, I went down there and found them and hunted them and loved it, and it began to go from there. Me and my old buddy Mister Ian went to Canada one time right after college, and uh, it was a utter unmitigated nightmare of a hunt. I mean, terrible beyond terrible. Started on day one, six of us, me and him and four guys from Michigan who were really good guys we got teamed up with. Our guy showed up at 8 o'clock in the morning, was so drunk he couldn't he couldn't stand without leaning on his truck. Mm. And it kind of went downhill from us. <laughs> and and we actually found, we actually went out one day and found our own hunt, and it was, uh, the year was 1998, they had just raised the limit to 20 snow geese, and we shot six limits in 71 minutes. Wow. Them up. And the outfitter bumped us off to the back of the line and started running all them other unhappy clients through there. And uh, But still. And uh, one thing led to another, and go to Argentina, go to Mexico. And you start, your species list gets bigger. My little taxidermy wall gets heavier. And and then, and then you just realize there's 167 waterfowl species in the world, and uh, and I love to travel. I got this dear friend Sam Van Hook from Florida. We've been friends for 20 something years. He's one of my my first clients. He's the best client. I enjoy his company. He used to come to Mississippi and we duck hunt back when Deep South still had a lot of ducks. And uh, I can remember his little boys when they were tall as this table. Now they're grown men with families of their own. And uh, one day we were walking through. Amsterdam. We've been over there in Netherlands hunting barnacle geese. And and he just started cracking up, laughing behind me. And I thought he'd seen something funny, so I stopped and said, what's up? He goes, I can't believe how much world I'm seeing following you around the world with a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that whole cultural experience stuff. And so that's really, uh, I've been blessed. I count subspecies. And let me explain. There's an accepted list of 41 North American species. That's the list. That's the, whatever, the slam. Well, they got sandhill cranes, and sandhill cranes aren't ducks. Well, if you're going to count sandhill cranes, why not count coots and rails and gallinules? Okay, but, okay, but, but you know, I can get it because sandhill cranes are hunted like ducks. Very responsive to decoys and calling. Okay, I get that. But then they got just, just little nuances that bother me, like there's a blue goose and a snow goose. Well, wait a minute. Mid-continent populations have two or three color morphs. They're the same thing. Why? why? Colors, that's a color difference. That doesn't make any sense. It's like a Labrador. He's black, yellow, brown. That don't make any sense at all. You know, there's one Labrador. But there's a greater snow goose in the Atlantic flyway. He's 30% bigger. He's a totally different species, a subspecies, and that counts. You know, you got Brant over on the uh, Atlantic coast. You got Brant on the East coast. And you hang them up on that wall, they look totally different. Similar habitats, different hunting, different culture, different backdrop. I think there's two swans in North America you can shoot. Back when I was in grad school or college, you know, there was 11 Canada goose subspecies. Now they've broken it out to cacklers. There's four subspecies of cacklers and Canada's, seven subspecies of Canada's. I think it matters because because if you want to go shoot a Canada goose, we can go right out here somewhere and shoot one in August, September. 
we start going off into to shooting the western, shooting the greater basin, shooting the Atlantic, shooting the greater, shooting the interiors, takes you to different parts of the world. And I value that. Go out there to Alaska or the Atlantic coast, and they got that little cackling goose that's the size of a greenhead. You know, what an amazing bird. Mm-hmm. So I count the subs, and I'm I'm four or five away from the North American sub, and it's I may never, I'm never going to get drawn to get an emperor goose, I'm certain. You know what I'm saying? I'm the guy that could fall in a barrel of boob and come out sucking his thumb. I'm just telling you, that's my luck. I, I'm about to give up, but I refuse, I refuse to. Never and, give um, up. But one thing led to another. You know, it's a big world, and, and what I, what's never ceased to amaze me is, if I say the word Pakistan, what do you think? I think Himalayan salt. I do too. But uh, <laughs> you, you might think something Rocky different. Mountains, just you know, the Indus River runs right through the middle of that country. It's a very, very dry country, and it's an absolutely incredible wetland. And uh, and there's ducks there. And and what 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 surprises me the more I travel, I've hunted six continents. Is is uh, especially in the northern hemisphere, mallards are everywhere, shovelers are everywhere. They got a different green wing. Our green wing originated from the Eurasian green wing. Slight, they look the same, they act the same, they sound the same. The white markings are different. Um, pintails, gadwalls, widgeons. Widgeon. Uh, well, and when you Isn't start there a Eurasian out, widgeon? When you start getting outside the United States and Mexico, North America, you start running into Eurasian widgeons. And uh, behavior's the same. They're they're very loud. That same to my deaf ears. Same whistle, but very loud. And uh, they respond to calling. Boy, you, if, you ever, if you ever, you guys listen, if you ever dial in, if you ever perfect widging calling, they're highly susceptible to coming into calling. And uh, But then you run into red-crested poachers, ferruginous poachers. I've seen marble teal, common shell ducks, you know, and they're there. So that list just starts getting longer and longer. You know, there's five races of cinnamon teal recognized. And, and when you get off into uh, cinnamon teal to cinnamon teal, they kind of sort of look the same. But genetically, when you, we start, when when a, when a species begins to genetically isolate, so I've got a cinnamon teal in North America, and I've got one, say, in Ecuador, one down in Argentina. They're independent breeding populations that have become differences genetically. You know, that's important to me, so I count them. And all said and done, uh, after the last trip to South Africa, I believe it was the last one I picked up a new species. I picked up two or three new species down there this year to include the African black duck, which is a hard son of a gun to nail down. Uh, 126 subspecies of waterfowl. Mm. And and somebody asked the other day, well, how many more do you need? I'm like, I have no idea because what you start running into, really, out of that 167, some of those species are, are down to 50 birds worldwide, some of them in captivity. I'm going to meet with a, an aviary. Uh, later this week for our podcast that, that's got some endangered species. You know, I think I may have talked species. to him on the phone you about a did. tree problem. Is he from Texas? No, Louisiana. Yeah. Louisiana. Yeah. Very, very possible. But, but you know, outside of captivity, those species just aren't going to exist eventually. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, I get a few crazy phone calls at times. People ask me about a red-breasted goose or a spectacle otter or stellar's out. I'm like, I do not deal in endangered species. That that you know, I would love to see them. Mm-hmm. You know, we go over to parts of Asia, and I've talked to my camera guy Jake Latondres, and I've said, "Man, you know, he's so good. I don't. He, he's a quick draw on that camera. How he gets that thing fired up and catches the footage, I don't know, but he does." 
And it's like, you know, my, my, I really hope that one day we're out there hunting somewhere and a red-breasted goose will sail in. And I'm hoping that it's so clear and so nice and not foggy that I, I, I can immediately recognize it so that we can film that bird coming in the decoys, maybe landing, maybe swimming around. And that'll count. And, leave, and leaving. It'll count for me. Mm-hmm. It sure will. And I, I kind of like that about you. You're, you've come up with your own roles. And, uh, you know, you earlier kind of mentioned something along the lines of you're, you know, we're not like the bird watchers, but you are. You're, you travel around. You're looking for that experience. Uh, you know, just... Going to the sandwich shop is just as important uh, an experience in that area as, as it is the actual Talking hunt. Talking to a lot of the guys, the, the, the thing that makes perfect sense about that 41 list, even though I think it's bigger than that, it, make, it does make very good sense because it's a very obtainable list. It's a good list for a guy to follow. It's a great list. And I get a lot of phone calls, but as I look at it and talk to it and everything else, it's one thing I, I kind of built my own little list uh North American list on our webpage there, and what I tried to say is, it, this is this is your this is not a contest, it's not a competition. This is your quest. Make it make of it what you want. It, 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 who cares about an award or who cares? It's, it, this is your life. This, make it make it about you. If you want to add more, subtract more. Make it. If you want to shoot them all with a four ten. Make it personal, man, because that's what, that's what this hunting stuff is all about. It's a personal thing. It's my personal relationship with that resource and that habitat and that culture. Make it, make it, make it personal, man. It doesn't have to be a something, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. I like it. Speaking of the, the gauge of the guns you shoot, I mean, we've had multiple folks talk about 28 gauges being just the – perfect whether it be for doves or for ducks or turkeys why do you think that is because it's a square load uh, the recoil is less and, and it, it's uh, the height to the width of that pattern sitting inside that shell is square mm-hmm. and i learned this from uh brandis ricky over at ball shot shells it, it's a square load and and they've even developed a uh, what they call a stinger round which is get this about one ounce of 12 gauge that son of a gun would improve mod patterns better than anything I've shot since the old lead days. So does it, is it not string? Does the pattern not string as no, bad? It, is it, that? That's right. I guess it's just all compressed and you know, like when you go shoot paper, you're seeing a one dimensional. dimensional yeah. You're shooting at something in the air. You've got a long column shot string going at it. It's a difference. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's different. I don't know. I, I I I've started shooting a 28 gauge more. Not all the time. 12 gauge is my go-to. Because at the end of the day, I'm not out there to watch the sunrise. That's right. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, But but I do shoot a 28 gauge. I've shot uh, everything with 28 gauge. And I don't – I'll be sitting in a blind with guys shooting 10 gauge or 12 gauge or three-and-a-half-inch magnums. I don't feel underwhelmed at all. You know, you just got to make the shot count. Mm-hmm. You know? What's your favorite way to eat duck? Oh, gosh, the next way I eat it, I guess, as long as it's good. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite ways to cook duck, and I try this recipe worldwide, cause it, and it's, I'll give you the idea of it, and, and then the adventure is opening up the cabinet in a foreign country and seeing what they got. But you take a mallard or a mallard-like duck, fat's important. Mm-hmm. You know, we get off into Mexico, they've got Mexican ducks, and this, this is an example. You get off into parts of Africa where they got yellow bills, and they're matter, they're, there's 13 matter-like subspecies around the world. It don't work because in those hot environments, they're non-migratory. It's skin. 
not fat. You know what I'm talking about? You go breast that mallard, you got that fat. Mm, that's what I'm looking for. That's it. But, so when I do breast my mallards, I, you pluck, leave this- I pluck them first and leave that fat on. That's exactly what we do. And uh, if I'm in another country that's got skinny ducks, I look for something that's got fat on it. Like, say, Mexico, Brant. Brant works. They migrate. They're a fatty duck. But I take I take it with the uh, the skin on, and I like to just pan sear it, pan sear it on both sides. And my my rule is three minutes, three minutes. Take it off the hot skillet, put it in a pan, put it in the oven at about 400 degrees. And while it's cooking for its three or four minutes, I take bourbon and butter, and I, I've used, and it comes a wild card, bourbon and butter or any kind of liquor. I've used peach schnapps, anything I can find. I'm a sherry guy. <laughs> Cherries. Sherry, like sherry wine. Oh, sherry. Okay. No. Uh, well, I, I I like to open up, like, let's say, uh, orange marmalade or fig preserves or who knows what you're going to find in a cabinet in a foreign country and, and, and just reduce it. And then when I bring the meat out to rest, top it with that. And it's good. It's, it's good. It's simple. It's easy. And I, my other favorite way is gumbo. But gumbo's a commitment to me, man. It yeah. Is a you know what yeah. I'm I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like jar roux. I, I, I like to start. Chopping the vegetables, mm-hmm. and and that's it's the process. It's the twelve pack process. Yes, you right. know. <laughs> um, that's funny. We do deer meat almost exactly like that. You know, you start Absolutely. it on the stove. You put something fatty. Once you've browned it, you put something fatty. You Absolutely. put something sweet, and you put something sour. Then you stick it in the oven for a couple minutes, and then you got your rare meat and you got your gravy Delicious. ready to go. We start off this episode. Y'all were talking about turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. I'm not a turkey hunter. I, I I try to be, and I say I tell. I told somebody one day I can't get mad at turkeys. And he said, "Well, you hunting the wrong turkeys, then, boy." <laughs> That's you know? exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, Lord, only help me if I ever got got to eat up with turkey hunting like I am ducks. I'd, I'd never be home, and I travel too much as it is. But I, it made me think. Uh, I'll tell you one of my favorite game birds in the world. As you begin to go out and chase experiences, I was going to Russia for the first time. And this is, you know, we're going over to duck hunt. Yeah, this is an appropriate time to tell this story with all the Russia stuff. A lot stuff of Russia going. stuff going on. <laughs> and uh but but I was we were hunting way up near the White Sea. And uh which is to say we were twenty kilometers from the Arctic Circle. It was April, or maybe it was early May or April. They got a, a short spring season there, and I was going over there to duck hunt. And that's before I realized we started off with a Russian duck hunt. We went back to Capricaley hunt. I'm getting to that. And the reason we don't, you know, not all cultures duck hunt like we think of duck hunting. And I accept pass shooting and a lot of different weather, but that brush is just practical. It's about going and killing it. It just wasn't my, like I give you an example, we'll go out there to hunt eiders on the White Sea. I don't know, I know these son of guns ain't got decoys, so I freaking packed eight eider decoys, packed a long line, I'm ready. And uh, I get out there and oh, the Russians don't speak English. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and I'll tell you later, thumbs up don't always mean like, hey, good. It can mean anything. <laughs> when we get in this little James Bond speedboat, and uh, we're going eider hunting, I'm thinking, well, I guess, oh, he takes off, and I'm hanging on for, I mean, just like a aluminum boat as wide as this little sofa right here, and whew, we're going, hitting the waves, four-foot waves, and uh, I figure we're just going out to where the eiders are, are leaving up, and I, uh, I say something about the decoy, and it gives me a thumbs up. That's the first time I learned thumbs up don't mean okay, I understand. And uh, now them decoys never come out of the bag because how they hunt them over there is run them down with speedboats. <laughs> and uh, client shot his, now it's my turn. So they're just jump shooting them out of boats. I'm in back of this little James Bond speedboat. I'm going to describe it as I remember it as 12 foot with a little cowling up front, you know, a little windshield. I'm in the back. It's aluminum, thin aluminum. 
and it hauled butt. Wham! We were, we're, we're scooting, bop, 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 feelings coming out of my teeth, hitting them bumps. <laughs> and I've got a double trigger rushing over and under and uh, no idea what chokes. And at Mach 3 or whatever he's doing through them waves, like we're being chased by, by somebody, and we are James Bond, I'm hanging on to one side of the boat. I got my feet on boat, <laughs> so I don't hit a bump and come flying out, and I'm holding a shotgun with one hand. <laughs> and it's like, we're looking, we're coming up on them eiders, and all of a sudden they're right there by me, flying the same speed we're going. So we're going fast as the eiders, trying to trying to get the heck out of Dodge. And we hit this wave, boom, and we're airborne. And the world gets slow motion. And I never forget that eider looking like. <laughs> <laughs> and I shot him, boom, and he goes. I'm like, okay. Yeah, decoys, right. Thumbs yeah. up, baby. Yeah, yeah. decoys. Good thing I brought these. That yeah. sounds more like a helicopter hog hunt than a, a duck hunt but they and the asked, opposite of legal in the U.S. They had asked me before I came on this hunt, before I packed my bags to go, and this was right after I left federal government. And uh, the idea, because times were tough, son. We had jumped from we had jumped into independent ownership of a business, and nobody knew who we were. And... Uh, I said, yeah, I'm going on this trip. My man, my wife put a foot down. Oh, you ain't going. I won that war. I, I've been married 28 years now. I, I don't win many of them, but, <laughs> yeah. but we get along. And I went, and uh, they had asked me, well, do you want to hunt Capricale? I'm like, well, yeah, what is it? What's a grouse? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to shoot a Capricale. I had no idea what a Capricale was. Looked them up in the book. Okay, it's a grouse. It's the world's largest grouse. And uh, I'm no turkey hunter. But Capricale is probably my favorite game bird on God's earth, pursuant to this story. So they come and pick us up. At, you got to understand now, just that close to the Arctic Circle, that time of year, uh, it starts to get light uh, four in the morning. And it's so it, it gets light so slowly, you can't tell if it's an optical illusion or your eyes are playing tricks on you. And, uh, and then it starts getting dark. you got a very brief window of daytime. So they come and pick us up around... 11 o'clock, midnight, whatever. And we park a truck. I'm thinking, okay, you know, going turkey hunting, you know. And uh, we walked down this bear trail, not a bear trail, through this boreal forest. I was told that that track of woods was a million acres. Mm. And we start walking and walking down this bear trail. And it's like black forest with just heaping clouds of moss and ferns. And we're just walking and walking. I'm like, well, man, we're going a ways off here to shoot a dang grouse, you know. So I start pacing. I'm, I'm a foster man. I know I know my chains. My pace is in my chains. I can do them in my sleep. Walk about two and a half miles, and it's pitch black dark. It's snow on the ground. And back in the day, I would bring a pair of uh, coon hunting boots. You ever seen those boots? It's like uh, rubber boots sewed into a pair of chaps. Uh, coon hunting boots. Mm-hmm. They're light. They roll up like a pair of socks. They're waterproof, and you can't stand in them, but you can step through water in them, and it— that was perfect thing to carry. And that, this trip may be the one that broke me up packing those things. I, we get up there, and it's just uninsulated lacrosse boots, you know, and I'm standing in the snow, and uh, we sit there for, stand there for two hours, and it's so cold, <laughs> I can hear my breath crystallizing. I can't hear nothing else, but I can hear my breath crystallizing in this cold air, and we're listening. And, uh, and every time I say, say something, the guy just do this, you know. Okay, so we're sitting in pitch black dark and two, three miles from the trail, and um, about that time, 
He does all that. I'm like, yeah, I hear something, woodpecker something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these, these, it's like turkey hunting in reverse. This Grouse have a breeding lick. That's just their historic breeding area. And this here's territory, and it's where they all convene to, to mate. What he'll do is, as the sun's rising, understand it's pitch black dark in them woods, he jumps up in a tree and starts making a sound. I didn't imitate that very well, but that he goes click, 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 click. And then it sounds like you drop this marble on a wet metal table and it goes gurgle, 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 gurgle. Gotcha. And, at the, and what I've learned is, now I can faintly hear this thing because I'm about deaf. And if you ever see two grown men walking through the woods holding hands in Russia, they're probably Capricaly hunters. The guy <laughs> behind them is me. <laughs> so he's in this tree and he's making his sound, calling those hens in. And his eyes are closed because he's singing. And at that moment that that gurgle starts to happen, a gland in his ear swells and he's deaf. Crunch, crunch. And y'all can Google Capricaly sounds on like YouTube and you'll hear, you hear that sound and then you hear crunch, crunch. That guy's Capricaly hunting. Mm. And, uh, and boy, I tell you what, you take two steps and you stop. And you don't stop on one foot. His eyes are open. He's a bird like a turkey. He's looking for a hen. Sees you, he's gone. Well, you you don't you're committed, baby. You back up in there. And uh, so two hunters. I don't know the Russian's name. We called him Roger. But close we come to pronunciation. He indicates for me to stand right where I'm standing. And he takes off with the other client. Well, I'm sitting there and it's it's starting to get just faintly light. There's snow everywhere, and you you can kind of see good, like it's like you know, like you can see it. Oh, full moon night. All of a sudden, I start seeing these birds walking around me. I'm like, man, look at this capercaillie everywhere. <laughs> I'm from Mississippi. I don't turkey hunt. Boom. But I know when I see a fan. Yeah. <laughs> I know I know, a, I know a male bird from a female. Oh, boy, look at that. He hops up in a tree, and he's just right there. And I go, man, they made a big deal about this. This ain't nothing. Boom, I shoot. He gone. He takes off flying. I'm like, How, y'all ever seen a grouse? Rough yeah. grouse? Yeah. I'm, that's, that's what I got in my mind at the time, at a rough, a big rough grouse. I pace it off at 70 yards. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, how big is this bird? Oh, I learned. That was my first day. Second night, me and let – me, let me finish this story. So I missed the bird. He don't see one. So we had gone through two deep muskegs, you know, little wetland areas, little little gullies with water in it, walking in. And as we're walking out, Roger has got his little GPS – and uh, and I'm I'm just following blindly along through the woods, you know. And uh, when we get to the third musk egg, I'm thinking to myself, "Now wait a minute, this ain't the way we come in." And now, you know, and he's sitting there scratching his head and looking at his GPS. And I look, and he toggled it to where he wasn't following the GPS. He just had his finger. And I touch the screen, boom. He goes. I don't know what he said, but it was OF bomb in Russia. <laughs> and we could hear this massive river. I mean, like, it's just the biggest river I've ever heard through the woods. So he just shrugs and starts walking that way, and we get up there to the most beautiful whitewater river, ice floating down, ducks flying I've ever seen. And he picks out a cell phone and calls. So I pick out my cell phone and turn it on. I got five bars. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> the little village we're staying in has a population of 20 people. We're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he calls and puts his phone up. About this time, his, down the river comes this little 
like Gilligan, yellow raft, a little Russian, one-man raft, and we all walk up to it, and they speak in Russian. He puts the client off into it. They go directly across the river, and he comes back. I figure it's my turn. He goes, nope, not sure. He gets in. They go across the river, and the guy comes back and gets me. We don't go across the river. We go back where he come from. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. This is awesome. We come up here to this uh we get right up to this bank, just all heavy brush around it, and I, I can hear, faintly, I can hear some music. It sounds like Russian opera. And uh, about the time two hands come out of bushes and pull the boat up on shore, and I step out and follow them up. There's a campfire, a couple of Russians laying on boughs they'd cut, just sitting there kind of half dozing, listening to a little AM transmitter radio playing Russian opera. They got fish hanging. I'm like, oh, they got some tea, they got some cheese, they got some sallow, little blocks of fat they eat, which is pretty dang good when you're hungry. I take off my boots, start drying them out. I figured the other guys are just walking in, going to be here any minute. They didn't come in until two hours later. When they got back, I was about half asleep laying on my little bows and, you know, just enjoying rushing up or thinking, that's pretty cool. But how far? I mean, they got this whole camp right here. We can't be far from their truck. We were five miles through the woods to it. Wow. But what an experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next night I go out. I can't see the bird. I'm right under that capricale, but with it faintly backlit, everything's dark and black. I can't see him in the tree. I can't see him. I can hear him. I can't see him. He flies off. I get back to camp, and the host, Lexi, says, we go to White Sea. No more capricale. I go, oh, no, baby. I'm in. I am. I am in. Matter of fact, I'm going out with Roger tonight, and I ain't coming back till I kill one. I want this bird. And we got on about three sets, and it didn't work. And now it's the sun's up. And those birds shut up when the sun comes up. They shut up. They go on and do their thing. Back one time I was hunting over there, and they started late, and we got on them. And by the, and we, we were sitting there waiting on him to sing again, and he didn't. And I'm looking under the bill of my hat, and I finally spy him. He's over about 70 yards. He's walking up and down a limb. He'd get all the way to the end, and it'd bend down like a diving board, and he'd walk back. He was done singing, but I got to watch him till he flew off. We went back the next morning and got him. But on that that first Capricale, I'll never, ever forget it. I'm three nights into this deal. I mean, no, you get there at midnight. Now we done, if I'd learned to find me a dry spot, we had no snow up under a tree, and just curl up and drink some hot tea and just sit there and enjoy it, just enjoy the silence, utterly silent. Like I, I never forget I had a client one time in the woods, and he, he had to bend 200 yards away, and I could hear as he was bending his arms, I could hear the, the jacket creasing. Mm-hmm. They love wax cotton what you want in that part of the world. You can need to be, or wool, you need to be silent because them birds can hear if I can hear. Or, or you can hear Velcro open a mile away through them quiet yeah, Zero you know, noise pollution. Zero noise pollution. And on that last morning, we were, man, we were getting after it. We were, my guy that morning wasn't Roger. It was it was like a ninja. He'd take three or four steps, like, like a, you know, on these steps, and if the sun was up, the bird's supposed to quit. And he peeked around that tree. That bird was da, 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 singing. He peeked around the tree, and he looked back at me, and he had a smile outside his face. I said, I look, when I look around, I'll never forget the sight. That Capricale was sitting like, the, like an angel at the top of this little conifer, and a single sunbeam just was hitting him like a spot. It was a, it was a gift from God. I was smiling too when I pulled the trigger. But, but that I've been back three times for those birds, and it's, it's, I guess it's partly the environment and the experience. It's just, it's just now I can get what turkey hunters get. I just don't hunt turkeys. 
capercaillie. It, it, it's like turkey hunting in reverse, and I just I absolutely love that game bird. How big are they? Big as a hen turkey. Golly. Hmm. 11 or 12 pounds. Hmm. And they got a big old hook beak that looks kind of like a hawk, but they're not. They're not like a hawk. They uh they use that beak like clippers to clip. They eat little uh, spruce shouts, uh, mm. spruce shoots. You know, uh, very dark meat bird. Yeah. Not particularly good to eat, but we ate them. Oh heck yeah, we ate them. Oh yeah. And this uh, was probably one of my in my little old bitty bird collection. I've got all them ducks and stuff like that, or a lot of them. But that one capercaillie, it's just. That's the one. I, that's, that, if I had to jump in there to save, build and catch it on fire, I got to catch one. It's going to be that bird first. Very interesting. Very, very unique. Okay, Max holding up a photo out. of it. I have a feeling that people are going to. I would definitely gonna, hunt that thing. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a colorful prairie chicken looking thing. Yeah. It's Bull strike. Deep forest, boreal forest. It. it you ever seen those old guns? They call them drillings. It's, it's uh, you see them European. They've got the or the two. It might be a rifle on top and a shotgun mm-hmm. on the bottom. That, that a lot of those uh, European capercaillie hunters. That's what they have because you can only stalk them like this during the spring breeding season. The rest of the year they'll go out and I mean just imagine on a, a cold winter day not a leaf in the tree trying to get within range of a turkey. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, right. they'll rifle them, you know. Well, back in the day, a bunch of people used to use those savage shotgun rifle combos on fall turkeys. That's it. You the know, same thing. 22 mag on the top, 20 gauge on the bottom, something like that. Same thing. Interesting. Hugely interesting. Man, what a good conversation. Yeah. We got to get you back on here. Sometime. Yeah, no doubt about it. We got more to talk about. I'm glad you're from Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Ramsey, you get, we appreciate you being here. You got any, uh, you know, we, we, we typically want to give you time to get some shout outs or anything that you want to, uh, promote yourself. I'm a huge fan of y'all's podcast. Well, thank I listen you. to it. <laughs> I listen to it. I, I drive, I'm, you know, doing all these road trips. I drive and fly a lot and, uh, I listen to your podcast. I've got one too, a little bit different format. We just have conversations one-on-one. I, I like to think of it as a, well, I like to think of it like, uh, one of my friends described me. He said, "Ramby, it's not a duck hunting podcast. You're, you're a freaking cultural anthropologist." Yeah, that's, that's really kind of it. I find myself kind of exploring duck duck hunting culture because here's something important I've learned. I'm from Mississippi. You know, we we got our stereotypes, and our biases. But man, you know, um, I am friends and hunting partners and business associates with. Folks all over the world, all races, colors, creeds, religions. And I don't care how extreme the difference is. You put any four men on God's earth in a duck blind, and in that moment, for that amount of time, you know what you are? Duck hunters. I had a, had a client in Azerbaijan a few years ago, which is right on the Caspian Sea. I'm talking, this is this is flying carpet, Aladdin, and, and, and Sinbad country. <laughs> and they are some of the most astute and skilled duck hunters. They market hunt. They feed their families. They are absolutely the most skillful duck hunters I've ever met on God's earth. Mm. They, they are the real deal. And But you get off on these little P-Rows, best I can describe, just imagine a, a, a little pine P-Row shaped buck that they caulk with mud so it don't leak while you're going in. And we push pole out in this marsh in the black dark. We might go 45 minutes out that way down these little old dim trails and come out to this little opening and and start to hunt, and it's everything, like I say, from red-crested poachers to, to gargany to 
mallards and pintails and, you know, green wings, stuff like that. And uh, they don't speak. Google Translate is, is almost virtually no help. Good, yet one words, it'll translate to where you can understand it, your guide. And uh, I had a client over there a few years ago saying, man, I, I, he was just real frustrated. Guy don't speak my language. He don't do this. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I don't speak there, and He ought to learn how to speak English. I go, dude, he's a duck hunter. And he's a better duck hunter than me and you are. He's a duck hunter, and you're a duck hunter. That's a universal language. That's right. You know, all you got to do is make a few hand signals and, you know. You know what's up, man. He came back the next day and said, you're right. You're, you're right. I said, yeah. You, you don't have to say, hey, move him decoy. I don't want that. All you got to do is kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. Motion, boom. Yeah. You know, and and you know that that's a that, that's a very very rewarding thing. So our podcast, Duck Season Somewhere, as we travel, we get into the bushes on some of that stuff. I like now language barriers being what they are sometimes tough, but but we like to meet with all duck hunters, and that's that's the name of our podcast, Duck Season Somewhere. I have an Instagram at Ramsey Russell Get Ducks. And uh, those are two best places to catch up with. I mean, what I would ask, man, this younger generation, uh, talking shop, um, I, I love, I communicate all day, every day on inbox. I need a place to talk serious. Hit me up with a text message. Now we can talk and I can keep track of who you are. Right. I'll never find, I'll never, I'll, two week, two days from now, I'll never find you again on my inbox. <laughs> Hit me up with a text message or an email. I mean, Ramsey's like the, uh, maybe, I don't mean to compare you to anybody, but, and you might, might, he might take offense to this, but it's like the Anthony Bourdain of, of duck hunting. <laughs> yeah. Kind of without the food twist. Yeah. yeah. But I do, you know, that's one thing. I went down to Guatemala, and this was crazy. I know y'all trying to close out the segment. No, nah, we'll talk all day. <laughs> but I, I was in Mexico, and I was all I could think is, I'm going to be home for two whole months not traveling. I'm going to be home. And I, I get a, a message from some guys down in Guatemala want me to come hunt. It's mid-February. It's been about February 20th. Their season ends on March 20th. I got my dog. I got my gun. Two, two, can't, can't line all that up quick enough. So I can't just go straight from Mexico. I go home, wash clothes, drop them off. I'm down in Guatemala. And we shot blue wings. Uh, I'm after a duck down there called a, a Pato Reale. They, they just imagine like the center of the Amazon basin and they that, that species distribution spreads out to extreme northern Argentina to southern Mexico. And, and this is great. Pato reality. You know what that means? Royal duck. Hmm. And, and you start getting in these communities that they're available. That is the duck they all prize most. The, the insane part is, you know what it is? It's a wild Muscovy. You know what a Muscovy duck is? A big black and white duck with a red Big water? ugly thing. A wild Muscovy. Huh. That got a lot of fat. It's good to eat. That's what they like. I saw a couple down in Guatemala. They were too far. We couldn't close the deal. And um, but but it was an amazing. And it was just like it's kind of like Mexico 150 years ago. It's like they got Mexican food, but it's better than Mexico. Mm-hmm. That says a lot. And uh, I, I just fell off into that. I, I told somebody if I ever run away from home, I'm gonna probably be down in Guatemala. <laughs> I love the culture. I just get to fall off so. That's just me. I'm running and gunning and seeing things, but it's all about that cultural experience. I do like the food. But if you think about duck hunting, turkey hunting, deer hunting, remove the animals from the equation. If it's all about the animal, if it's only about the animal, you know what you got? A dead animal. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. Turkey hunting, deer hunting, deer camp, duck camp, it's all the same. Man. It, it, it's a whole experience, and that's what keeps us, that's what makes us so passionate about it. 
not the trigger pull. And if you're young, I understand the trigger pulls are important, but it's something. I'm not out there to watch the sunrise. But beyond that, that's what keeps me going. That's great. Great message, um, no doubt about it. And, you know, you do it your way. There's a lot of folks that do it other ways, you know. You don't you don't have to travel the world, but, it, it again, it's all about the experience. Mm-hmm. It's all about and, the experience. And life is short, and uh, it's fun to share that with other folks. No doubt about it. That's our creed, life short, get ducks. Yeah, life yeah. is short, get ducks. I love live it. it. Live it up. Well, good deal. Well, look, uh, we appreciate you being here. I think Sam's in the back. He's got some red beans and rice. All right. And duck and alligator sausage. Yeah, I can smell it. Y'all can hear my, probably hear my stomach growling over here. That's bad when he's cooking we're talking. But uh, we got to ask Dudley for this week? We do. Um, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a good one. So here we go. Hey, Dudley, I found three really old apple trees on my new property that's outside of Blacksburg, Virginia. They're big but surrounded by other trees and have branches all over the place. Do you have any tips on how to manage them so they will be heavy producers and last a good bit longer? Thanks, Michael Tuttle. Awesome, Michael. Um, I've kind of been waiting on this question, and and it's been around before. Um, I've seen other folks answer this question, and uh, I'm going to add a little bit to that. But uh, generally what you want to do on on a situation like that, and you might want to get in touch with some type of apple enthusiast. There's a lot of them in in your neck of the woods, but that may be some old variety that needs to be rediscovered. Um, But uh, basically what you want to do is is nothing drastic. Um, I would first start out by, you know, clearing a few of the other trees around it out of the way so it can get some more sunlight. Um, And never try to make any of your corrective cuts all at once. So on a really old tree, you may want to make seven or eight, ten visits to it, making corrective cuts, um, you know, every dormant season and getting that tree back in shape. So, you know, branches that are touching are probably need to be the first to go. Um, and then you come back another time and, and shorten some of the branches, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, again, clearing some of the other trees around it so it can get sunlight. You don't want to rip anything out of the ground and, and mess up the root systems. But uh, it's not that difficult to do. You just want to do it slowly. Um, you know, maybe every three months go in there and make some corrective pruning or, or every year in the wintertime, uh, you know, go once in the fall and then once again right before spring and then do that again the next year until you can get the shape of that tree back to a manageable size where you can reach the apples. Um, it may be on an old standard root stock or it may be on its own root. So it's not like a dwarfed tree. It's, it's going to be big and, and hard to manage. But uh, you just have to play it by ear, and when you make a cut, step back 10 yards and, and look at it, you know, like you're looking at a painting, and then go back to it and make a couple more cuts, but not all at once. And, uh, and you'll get it back in shape. But I also wanted to add to that is that, um, you know, some of those trees can be sensitive, and you may lose one. So my advice would, I've got a grafting video on YouTube that can teach you how to graft. Um, you could probably plant one of our crab apple trees or um, plant some seeds off of this tree and, uh, and then graft onto it. That way you know you're making an exact copy 
of each of those trees that you can share with other people or if you end up messing up. (laughs) And uh, but you'll you'll make that individual tree live to see another day that you can share with other people. So, yeah, take your time pruning on it and getting back into shape and then learn how to graft and and reproduce that clone. So thank you, Mr. Know-it-all. I hope that helps. Doesn't that doesn't that pruning uh, help maximize fruit production? It does, but um, you know when those trees have been there for you know maybe a hundred years without being pruned, and you go in and make all these drastic cuts, uh, you may introduce disease or you know it's it's just it's hard to do, mm-hmm. um, and so that's why I stress trying to clonally reproduce that thing before you get started chopping on it. Gotcha. Just um, in case. Yeah, just in case. Because I can be sensitive. Well, thank you, Dudley. Yeah. Cool. Well, what we learned today, Mac? Enjoy the experience. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And and get out of your comfort zone. I mean, just because something sounds unattainable doesn't mean you, you can't do it and make it happen. And that we're all cut from the same cloth. Uh, for the most part and, and enjoy the experience is what I learned for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I learned something similar. And, uh, you know, I'll throw this out there, and, and Ramsey could agree with me on this, I think, is, uh, you know, he's he's turned his business into an opportunity to be able to travel all over the world. You know, not everybody has that opportunity. Or um, that dream. Uh, yeah. A long time ago, well, no, about four or five years ago, I was venting to my neighbor that, you know, I want to go travel more. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting tired of my experiences around here. And, and I was referring to like going camping in the Rocky mountains and, you know, having a hard time doing it. He was like, you need to make Mississippi your Montana. And, uh, ever since then I've been kind of branching out. I've, I've gotten more into this government woods and, you know, Sunday afternoon walks and seeing mature trees. And, um, so, that's kind of what I learned is, you know, uh, Ramsey's done some really cool stuff, but but find your own way to, yeah. to get new experiences. Well, if I could add this, if I, if I could say something, you know, I'd Absolutely. say that the more I've traveled, the greater my fidelity for home has become because I'm from Mississippi. And everywhere I go, I take Mississippi with me. And I bring that part of the world back to home, to my, to how I hunt here and what, how I see my world. And, and we live in a fascinating state. And, and you, golly, man, the world's a lot. On the one hand, the world's a lot bigger than our backyard. But everybody listening, your backyard's a pretty cool place. I've seen parts of it. Right. You know, you just maybe not be scratching the surface deep enough. But it's, it's, a, it's a really cool place. There's no substitute for home. Right. Home is who you are. That's right. Lanny? Yeah, man. I, again, I think we're what y'all say. Make each meet, make each experience your own and define your own success. Uh, and it's really interesting listening to to Ramsey talk about the balance. You know, because often as as waterfowl hunters, we're like we put it on. There's too much pressure. There's too many duck hunters. But the bottom line is we have to recruit more people into the sport. Uh, we have to take the responsibility of the resource into our hands, like we need to as hunters too, uh, and do everything we can uh, for habitat because that's the answer. Uh, there's no doubt about it. So, good stuff. Cool. Love it. Love it. Well, say goodbye, Dudley. 
Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.